You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, March 8th. I'm Patty Caldera from Drake University, and here's our first story. Trivium to open coffee shop. Create work, social opportunities for clients. Trivium Life Services will open a coffee shop later this spring to provide work and connection opportunities for its clients. The project was boosted recently by a $1,000 grant from the Southwest Iowa Impact Fund, part of the third grant cycle for the fund based at Four Corners Community Foundation. According to a press release from the Foundation's Board of Directors, the terrace, as it will be called, will be located in a 2,500-square-foot space at 4201 Rivers Edge Parkway, Suite 100, and Council Bluffs. The shop will help Trivium accomplish its goal of providing fulfilling work to those who suffer with disabilities or mental illness while also connecting and serving community needs. In addition, it will add to the economic vitality of the area and provide future opportunities for collaboration with local restaurants. Trivium provides services to individuals with disabilities and provides respite to their families. The agency has a long history of empowering those with developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, chronic mental illness, and brain injuries towards independence through residential and day habitational services. Whether people are seeking behavioral health services or long-term support, Trivium's holistic approach can help individuals reach their goal. The Southwest Iowa Impact Fund's mission is to assist more families or individuals in need, create economic viability, and help create community impact. The terrorists will help to continue. The Southwest Iowa Impact Fund's mission is to assist more families or individuals in need, create economic vi- viability, and help create community impact. The terrorists will help to connect the larger community to the expansive mission of Trivium Life Services, and this funding in partnership with Four Corners Community Foundation helps amplify these efforts, said Brent Dillinger, CEO. Four Corners Community Foundation, formerly TS Community Foundation, is a 501-3 organization designed to help giving people achieve more with their donations. Founded in 1999, 4CCF is committed to developing long-term prosperity in the local communities and a charitable process that gives donors more financial flexibility. In 2019, 4CCF became an affiliate of Community Foundation for Western Iowa as partners. The two organizations will continue efforts to spur growth and prosperity in Southwest Iowa. The partnership with Community Foundation for Western Iowa provides tax incentives for donors such as Endo-Iowa tax credit. Reynolds plan advances. Record Renault's plan advances. Reorganization bill still needs to pass the Iowa House. Des Moines, a sweeping proposal to restructure the executive branch of Iowa state government, took a key step forward becoming law by passing the Iowa Senate on Tuesday. Government Kim Reynolds 
proposal in the form of nearly a 1,600-page bill was approved only by her fellow Republicans in the Senate. Reynolds has argued that Iowa state government is overdue for restructuring, that a reorganization of this scope has not been conducted since the 1980s. She said her proposed reorganization will make state government more efficient and responsive to Iowans, and that it can be accomplished without laying off any state workers. The governor's office said some state positions that are currently vacant will be eliminated through attrition. The result will be a state government that will be aligned with the only reason that it exists, and that is to serve Iowans, Reynolds said earlier Tuesday at the Capitol while speaking to a meeting of the Iowa Bankers Association. Democrats have argued the proposal steamlights state government to the point where it gives the governor too much authority and reiterated myriad concerns raised by state workers and advocates that believe some of the proposed changes will adversely impact some agencies and their services. The proposal is a power grab, plain and simple, said Senator Zach Walls, the Senate Democrats' leader for Coralville. The bill passed the Senate on a 34-15, mostly party-line vote. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig who chairs the Senate's Committee on State Government and has been shepherding Reynolds' proposal through the legislative process, disputed the argument that the bill represents a power grab. We're taking departments, commissions, boards, entities, and placing them closer to the governor's chain of command, Schultz said. Under the bill, the number of state agencies with the directors who report directly to the governor will be reduced from 37 to 16. Myriad departments would be merged. For example, the Department of Cultural Affairs would merge with the Department of Administrative Services. The Iowa Finance Authority would merge with the Iowa Economic Development Authority, and the Department of Human Rights would merge with the Department of Health and Human Services. Among many other provisions, the proposal also would create more agency leaders who are appointed by the governor and subject to Iowa State Among many other provisions, the proposal also would create more agency leaders who are appointed by the governor and subject to Iowa Senate confirmation rather than being elected by state boards or commissions and brings community-based correction programs into the state Department of Corrections. The proposal also would give the governor more leeway to pay directors higher salaries, which Reynolds has said is needed to recruit and retain top talent and streamline higher salaries. By eliminating the need for bonuses would explicitly state that the state attorney general has the authority to prosecute cases without first consulting with the county attorney and would give the state attorney general's office exclusive jurisdiction over elections-related cases. Majority Republicans advance the giant bill with only minor technical amendments. Nothing of substance in Reynolds' original proposal was changed. I have come to the conclusion that the homework has been done, that the concerns, while they are legitimate concerns, that the answers I received show that the homework has been done and that this is a good bill, Schultz said. Senate Democrats presented 11 amendments to the bill, most proposing to strike a proposed change and keep a state agency where it currently resides within the state government. For example, Democrats proposed 
eliminating the attorney general jurisdiction language, preventing the dissolution of the State Board of Health, keeping community-based correction programs more independent of the state, and keeping where they are the Iowa Civil Rights Commission, the State Consumer Advocates Office, and the Department of the Blind. Majority Republicans reject each amendment proposed by Democrats. I wish we could have addressed more changes in this chamber rather than a complete rejection of any ideas that minority parties had, said Senator Tony Bisigano, a Democrat from Des Moines. Reynolds' proposed Senate File 514 was informed by a recommendation made in a 68-page report produced by a Virginia-based consulting firm. Guidehouse was paid nearly $1 million by the state, which used federal pandemic relief funds. The Guidehouse report estimates that if the governor's office implements its recommendations, the state could save a total of roughly $250 million over four years, including $7.35 million in the first year. Those savings include the proposed selling of some state-owned lands around prisons, a fiscal analysis from the state's nonpartisan legislative services agency says the governor's bill, which does not include those prospective land sales, will reduce state general fund spending by $12.4 million in the first year. With the, its passage in the Senate, the proposal now needs only the blessing of the Iowa House, the House is not expected to debate this bill this week. St. Albert's Thunderstruck has best year yet. St. Albert High School's Thunderstruck robotics team had its best year yet at the Iowa Championships last weekend. The team placed 12 in the gold division at the first Tech Challenge Robotics Competition March 3rd or the 4th at the Extreme Arena in Coralville, according to Andrea Barnes, who shares volunteer coaching duties with Lynn Gardner. Only nine of the team's 12 members were able to participate, as three were helping to lead a St. Albert retreat. We had six matches that we competed in, and only one of our alliance partners was a team from our league, she said. We got to see a lot of different teams and robots. The Iowa Championships includes 48 teams from all of the super qualifiers in the state. Thunderstruck finished 12th in the division but did not win any judges' awards, Barnes said. Teams are judged both by the record in the robot matches and by the awards they receive. This is the highest we have ever finished at state, she said. Unfortunately, Thunderstruck did not do well enough to qualify for world competition, Barnes said. Only three of a f or four of the 48 teams will go on to compete at Worlds in Houston in April, she said. Thunderstruck was one of 12 teams that qualified for state from its league, Barnes said. At its league championship, the team was named the finalist alliance captain and won the Collins Aerospace Innovative Award. The team placed second in the robot matches. The team advanced to the super qualifier, basically a subset level, Barnes said, which combined teams from two leagues. A total of 24 teams competed and 16 advanced, including Thunderstruck. The team was part of the finalist alliance and won the Motivate Award, qualifying for a state for the third time. The first two times Thunderstruck competed at state were in 2019 and 2020, she said. 
In 2020, the competition was held just a few weeks before the local COVID-19 outbreak. One of the team seniors participated that year as a freshman. Contestants at the Iowa Championship competed using the same FTC game challenge they have been doing all season. Barnes said, As a result, Thunderstruck used the same robot with a few improvements and adjustments and focused on the same tasks. However, team members took turns operating the robot. We are one of the few teams that allow of its members to drive the robot in the matches, she said. Usually teams will have a dedicated drive team, but we feel that all the members should get a chance to do all the parts of the FTC season, including the fun part, which is driving the robot. Farron opposes $4.2 million settlement in racism lawsuit. The State Appeal Board on Monday okayed paying $4.2 million to settle a racial discrimination lawsuit brought by former Hawkeye football players against the University of Iowa. Despite opposition from the state auditor and from Iowa's coaches, the three-member board two-to-one vote to pay the settlement aligned with a recommendation from the Iowa Attorney General that $2 million of the total come from the state's general fund. But it went against UI football coaches' wishes, according to a statement from UI's head coach, Coach Kirk Ferentz. The settlement between negotiations took place between plaintiffs' counsel and the Iowa Attorney General's office, which represents the University of Iowa and the Board of Regents. Ferentz said, these discussions took place entirely without the knowledge or consent of the coaches who were named in the lawsuit. In fact, the parties originally named disagree with the decision to settle, fully believing that the case would have been dismissed with prejudice before trial. In this statement, Ferentz said that settlement came before a judge could rule on a request for summary judgment outlining why the case should have been dismissed. We have been told the reason for the settlement is financial, he said. Nothing the settlement does not constitute any admission or wrongdoing. For more than two years, our program has been unfairly and negatively impacted by these allegations, Farron said. Members of the staff had their character and reputation tarnished by four members of our team who said things, then recanted many statements when questioned under oath. Today, Farron said, we move forward. My focus is entirely on the players, coaches, and staff of, as we prepare for the 2023 season. UI officially on Monday didn't respond to the guest's request for comment from UI President Barbara Wilson on the settlement or the appeal board's discussion around UI Athletics Director Gary Barta and the football coaches. State Auditor Rob Sand, who opposed the settlement, told the Gazette, he hasn't had a conversation with Wilson on the matter. Board's decision. Sandy Democrat was the sole Board of Appeal member who voted no. State Treasurer Robbie Smith and Department of Management Director Craig Polson, both Republicans, voted yes. But Smith, echoing Sand's sentiments, said he would like the UI to recognize her its relationship with UI Athletics Director Gary Barta and Offensive Coordinator Brian Ferentz. Discrimination of any kind is unacceptable and should not be tolerated, Smith said. 
Given this, I would encourage the university to re-examine its relationship with not only Gary Barta, but Brian Fence and others named in recent lawsuits. Smith said he voted for the settlement in light of the board's charge to make sound business decisions that make the most financial sense given the potential future liabilities Iowans can be on the hook for. Although Smith said he'd prefer the UI found the entire settlement, Iowa Code obligates the state to pay judgments against its department, like the Board of Regents, and the state attorney general feels it is the best financial interest of the Iowa taxpayers. Voting no on the proposed settlement, he said, would compel the case to trial and open Iowa taxpayers up to future liabilities that could far exceed the $4 million settlement. Legal fees alone could exceed the settlement agreement by as much as $2 million if the case plays out, Smith said. Therefore, I'm going to do what is prudent and what is the best interest of Iowa taxpayers. Sand in making his case to reject the deal so long as Barta remains UI's athlete director said the board's role is to consider on terms of an agreement, and he wants to see that level of personal accountability. Specifically, Sand referenced a growing list of discrimination lawsuits against UI athletes and related settlements costing millions such as the one UI athlete signed in September 2021, settling a discrimination lawsuit brought by female athletes accusing the UI of violating their athletic opportunity rights. I think it's important that we make sure that people understand that discrimination is not only morally wrong, but discrimination too is financially foolish, Sen said. You're costing the athletics department and costing taxpayers money when you do this kind of thing. And we're going to hold people accountable. We're going to prevent additional individuals from becoming victims of discrimination. We're going to protect taxpayers. We have to, at a certain point, demand more personal responsibility for this kind of thing. Sands said the football player's lawsuit is the fourth discrimination case against UI athletes in under nine years, resulting in settlements holding nearly $11 million on Bart's, Barta's watch. After the largest settlement, Barta asserted no wrong was done, Sands said. Now we have a new matter for $4 million more, and for the first time, they want part paid from the taxpayer's general fund, even though they now collect tens of millions annually through the Big Ten TV deal. Enough is enough. Clear personal accountability is necessary. Public policy. Barta's current contract expires in 2024 after he signed an extension in 2019, hired in 2006. Barta has worked under five UI presidents, including two interns, and in the 2022 budget year made, about $1.2 million after bonuses, according to the state employee salary book. When asked recently about his future with the Hawkeyes, Barta told the Gazette, when President Barbara Wilson first started, I told her I don't want to go anywhere. If she'll have me, we'll just keep going. Barta said he hasn't given 
retirement, any consideration at this point. I've been here for 17 years, so I'm not too worried about it, Barta said. Face of the day. The Shamrock Shuffle is this Saturday, and John Urzendowski is ready to reprise his role as a ceremonial leprechaun. Urzendowski, 36, is an Omaha native, and he's been part of the Council Plus community for more than a decade. He graduated from Omaha South High School in 2005 and later studied at Metropolitan Community College. He's a personal trainer with certifications from the American Council on Exercise and the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Orendowski is a familiar face at Renegade Boot Camp and Boxing 19277 Conifer Lane, as he's been a trainer and teacher at the gym since its opening in 2016. He has been training himself in Council Bluffs since 2012. He said a lot has changed since Renegade's opening, but one constant has been great clients he loves working out with week in and week out. Orendowski also works part-time at Barley's on the 100 block, where he's been since August 2021. <clears throat> he said working at Barley's and being on the 100 block are great because he gets to interact with even more of the community on a daily basis. Orendowski keeps busy as a family man as well. He and his wife, Casey, welcomed their third child in July. Shamus Orzendowski is now seven months old and the younger brother of Sol Solomon, four, and their sister, Isley, six. Orzendowski said a lot was going on in life right after his son was born, but the dust has settled and the family is happy and healthy. His brother, Paul, also recently had a child. So the Orendowskis are getting lots of family time in these days. Orendowski is looking forward to donning his green garb this Saturday for the 712 Initiative's annual Shamrock Shuffle Fun Run and Walk through Cancel Bluffs. The race always begins on the 100 block and since 2017. Orendowski has led the pack from the starting line dressed as a leprechaun. He said the day of the race is a great hangout, and he's just happy to be able to contribute to a fun event. It's about maintaining my relationship with community, and it's just a fun gig, he said. It's good for the blog, good for the 712 initiative. It's bigger and better every year. I'm happy to do my part. The deadline for race registration is 6 p.m. on Friday, March 10, and people can sign up at the 712initiative.org. The race is Saturday, starting at 10 a.m. This year will feature a 200-meter leprechaun chase for children 10 and under, which starts at 9.30 a.m. Live music, food, drink, and other festivities will take place on the 100 block following the run. The Shamrock Shuffle has been going on since 2012, and this year's race is presented by T.S. Bank. More information can be found on the 712 Initiative website and on their Facebook page. More information about Renegade Bootcamp and boxing can be found at renegadeecb.com. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, March 8th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. 
I'm Patty Caldera from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from our listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Obituaries. Betty Shockey Cutler. On February 18, 2023, Betty Shockey Cutler, at the age of 97, passed away at Bigford Assisted Living in Marshalltown, Iowa. Betty was born on November 1st, 1925 in Council Bluffs to Muriel and Lou Ross. She graduated from Oakland High School and received a bachelor's degree from the University of Colorado in 1946. Betty spent most of her life in Council Bluffs and had a deep love for the Midwest, her friends, the community, and her family. Betty was a teacher when living in Colorado and later in life was an administrator for the Girl Scouts. She also served on many boards, but her true love was her family. Known as Mom, Grammy, GGB, and Ready Steady Betty, she loved unconditionally and accepted everyone for who they are. 35 years ago, she started a tradition for her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of gathering at Lake Okobohee, Iowa. That tradition and her spirit continues every summer with Camp Betty. She's preceded in death by her parents, her brother, Lou Ross, and her two husbands, Everett Shockey, 1947-1976, and Bill Cutler. 1983 to 2010. Betty is survived by her six children and their spouses, Robert Shockey and Phi, Jane Engel, John Shockey, Tom Shockey, and Bill Shockey. She is also survived by her 14 grandchildren, 13 great-grandchildren, and the extended Cutler family. Visitation will be Friday, March 10th, 5 to 7 p.m., with funeral service Saturday, March 11th, at 10 a.m., at the Cuddler O'Neill Mayor Woodering Funeral Home Memorial Memorial. Contributions are suggested for the First Congregational Church and Iowa River Hospice in Marshalltown. Virginia M. Ginny Rojas. Virginia M. Ginny Rojas, age 77, of Council Bluffs, passed away March 6, 2023, at Northcrest Living Center. Ginny was born April 27, 1945, in Des Moines, Iowa, to the late Charles and only Watson Hearing. She graduated from Oakland, Iowa High School in 1962, and from beauty school in 1964. Ginny owned and operated Ginny's Beauty Salon, worked at Super Saver Grocery Store and Ogden Salon. In addition to her parents, Ginny was preceded in death by her granddaughter, Cara Don Rojas, in 1997, Sister Barb, 
and brother Junior. Jenny is survived by her daughter, Rachel Pickenpaw of Boner Springs, can son Tony Missy Rojas of Castle Bluffs, grandchildren Jessica Nelson, Tyler Rojas, Jocelyn Nelson, great-grandchildren Jameson, Silas, Hudson, Harley, Jackson, and Lily, siblings Mary, Betty, Dorothy, Pentgraf, Pat Wingan, Carol Guyer, Margaret Stubblefield, Butch Herring, Gary Herring, many nieces and nephews. Celebration of Life Service Friday, 11 a.m. at Cutler O'Neill Mayor Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. A lunch will immediately follow at the Walnut Hill Reception Center, 1350 Ebe Pierce Street, private family burial in Garner Township, Cemetery visitations with the family one hour prior to the service on Friday at the funeral home. Memorials are suggested to the Arthurus Foundation. Arkansas's Tyson workers sue over lack of COVID protection. 34 Tyson food employees, former employees and family members, filed a lawsuit against the company Monday saying it failed to take appropriate precautions at its meat packing plants during the early days of COVID pandemic. In the lawsuit filed in Pulaski County Circuit Court in Tyson's home state of Arkansas, the plaintiff said Tyson's negligence and disregard for its workers led to emotional distress, illness, and death. Several of the plaintiffs are the spouses or children of Tyson workers who died after contracting COVID. A message-seeking comment was left for Springdale, Arkansas-based Tyson. Meatpacking facilities were early epicenters of the COVID epidemic in the U.S., which employees working closely together on the production line at least 59,000 meatpacking workers contracted COVID-19 and 269 workers died in 2020, according to a U.S. House report issued in 2021. The lawsuit claims Tyson knew about COVID as early as January 2020 when the virus was spreading through the facilities in China. On March 13 of that year, the lawsuit said Tyson suspended all business travel and mandated that all non-critical employees at its corporate office worked remotely. But at the five Arkansas plants where the plaintiffs of their family members worked, Tyson did not provide masks or allow work modifications to allow for social distancing until late April 2020. The lawsuit said the company also didn't perform contact tracing, or quarantine infected workers, the lawsuit said. The plaintiffs are seeking monetary damages. The lawsuit isn't the first to target Tyson over its COVID protocols. In late February, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a petition by Tyson to move a case in Iowa to federal court. Tyson argued that federal officials wanted it to keep the company's plans running, citing an executive order signed by former President Donald Trump, designating meat processing as essential in infrastructure. But a federal appeals court judge wrote last year that Tyson 
can't claim it was operating under the direction of the federal government. The case, filed by family members of Tyson employees who died of COVID, has been sent back to Iowa State Court. Court docs link police and educational program shootings. Two gang members charged in a deadly shooting at an educational program for at-risk youth in Des Moines appeared in to be seeking relation after a rival gang member raped dismissively about a fatal police shooting. Two gang members charged in deadly shooting at an educational program for at-risk youth in Des Moines appeared to be seeking relation after a rival gang member rapped dismissively about a fatal police shooting, new court documents suggest. The details disclosed in applications for search warrants connect. The two Iowa shootings, as well as one in Arizona for the first time, all told four people died in the complicated jumble of interconnected violence, some of it gang-related. Handguns, ammunition, and marijuana were uncovered when the warrants were executed last month at properties associated with Brevin Michael Tukes. Brevin, Brevin Tukes and Preston Walls are charged with first-degree murder and other counts in the Jan 23rd shooting at the Starts Right Here program, which provides help to students through a contract with Des Moines Public Schools. The tragic chain of events that led to the double homicide started in November when Brevin Tukes' brother, Brevin Tukes, a 23-year-old former Des Moines High School football star, was fatally shot in the Phoenix suburb of Glendale. The family was devastated, and one day after Christmas, Des Moines, police responded to a disturbance involving Brevin Tukes' half-brother, 16-year-old Trevante Jenkins. A report released previously said the teen told the officers, I want to be with my brother, before pointing a gun at officers. The officers who had been urging the teen to put down the weapon then fired multiple times in a fatal shooting that the Iowa Attorney General's office has ruled was justified. The police department had previously declined the name to the name the teen, citing state confidentiality laws for juveniles. Jenkins was identified by name for the first time in the Warren application. Rival gang members responded to the fatal police shootings by making disrespectful comments about Jenkins and his fellow gang members on social media. The Warren application said, Violence between the city's gangs had been on the rise recent already, with a shooting that killed one teen and wounded two others last spring outside a Des Moines high school, also blamed on a gang dispute. On January 15, the 19-year-old Brevin Tukes, who had a well-documented history of gang involvement that dated to at least 2020, posted a picture of himself on Facebook with an ominous caption, the warrant, the warrant application said, I don't want no peace. I want to see dead bodies because my little broad died and I want the same for everybody, the caption read. The next day, Rosh Hadkar, a 16-year-old rival gang member, posted to YouTube a video of him rapping that referenced various shootings, including the police shooting death of Robin Tuck's half-brother, the warrant said. Think y'all could 
Dis us be for real, Carr said, mocking the gang for crying. Threats of retaliation spiked on social media in the following days. The warrant application said, and within a week, Carr and Gianni DeMarin, who was 18, were killed inside the Starts Right Here program. The program's founder, Williams Holmes, who also is known as Will Keeps, was wounded trying to intervene, but survived. The program temporarily closed and reopened just last week. Court documents alleged that Bravantix was the gateway driver and Walls, who is 18, was the gunman. Neither has entered a formal plea yet. The warrant application also describes for the first time that Demirin was armed. It's said that the Demirin fell to the ground after he was wounded in the first round of gunfire. Surveillance video shows him trying unsuccessfully to pull something from his waistband before Walls shot him several more times. A handgun later was found concealed in De Moran's waistband, according to the document. Scientists study dogs of Chernobyl. More than 35 years after the world's worst nuclear accident, the dogs of Chernobyl roam among decaying abandoned buildings in and around the closed plant, somehow still able to find food, breed, and survive. Scientists hope that studying these dogs can teach humans new tricks about how to live in the harshest, most degraded environments, too. They recently published the first of what they hope will be many genetic studies in the journal Science Advances, focusing on 302 free-roaming dogs living in an officially designated exclusion zone. Around the disaster site, they identified populations whose differing levels of radiation exposure may have made them genetically distinct from one another and other dogs worldwide. We've had this golden opportunity to lay the groundwork for answering a crucial question. How do you survive in a hostile environment like this for 15 generations? Said geneticist Elaine Ostrander of the National Human Genome Research Institute. One of the study's many authors. Fellow author Tim Mausu, professor at biological science at the University of South Carolina, said the dogs provide an incredible tool to look at the impacts of this kind of setting on mammals overall. Chernobyl's environment is singularly brutal. On April 26, 1986, an explosion and fire at the Ukraine power plant caused radioactive fallout that spewed into the atmosphere. 30 workers were killed in the immediate aftermath, while the long-term death toll from radiation poisoning is estimated to eventually number in the thousands. Research says most of the dogs they are studying appear to be descendants of pets that residents were forced to leave behind when they evacuated. Masus has been working in the Chernobyl region since the late 1990s, and began collecting blood from the dogs in about 2017. Some of the dogs live in the power plant, a dystopian industrial setting. Others are about 9 miles or 28 miles away. At first, Ostrander said they thought the dogs might have intermingled so much over time that they'd be much the same. But through DNA, they could 
Ridley of high, low, and medium levels of radiation exposure. That was a huge milestone for us, said Ostrander. And what's surprising is we can even identify families, about 15 different ones. Now researchers can begin to look for altercations in the DNA. We can compare them and we can say, okay, what's different? What's changed? What's mutated? What's evolved? What helps you? What hurts you at the DNA level? Ostrander said, this will be involved separating non-consensual DNA changes from purposeful ones. Scientists said the research could have wide applications, providing insight about how animals and humans can live now and in the future in regions of the world under continuous environmental assault and in the high-radiation environment of space. Dr. Kerry Eckenstead, a veterinarian who teaches at Purdue University and was not involved in the study, said it's a first step towards answering important questions about how constant exposure to higher levels of radiation affects large mammals. For example, he, she said, is it going to be changing their genomes at a rapid rate? Question mark. Researchers already started on the follow-up research, which will mean more time with the dogs at the site about 60 miles from Kiviv. Masu said he and his colleagues were there most recently last October and didn't see any boar-related activity. Masu said the team has grown close to some dogs, naming one Prancer because she excitedly prances around when she sees people. Even though they're wild, they still very much enjoy human interaction, he said, especially when there's food involved. Two Americans killed, two rescued. Group was on a trip to get medical procedure in Mexican border city. Ciudad Victoria, Mexico, a road trip to Mexico for cosmetic surgery ended with two Americans dead and two others found alive in a rural area near the Gulf Coast. After a violent shootout and abduction that was captured on video, officials said Tuesday. The surviving Americans were back on U.S. soil after being sped to the border near Brownsville, the southernmost tip of Texas, in a convoy of ambulances and SUVs escorted by Mexican military Humvees and National Guard trucks with mounted machine guns. A relative of one of the victims said Monday that the four had traveled together from the Carolinas so one of them could get a tummy tuck surgery from a doctor in the Mexican border city of Metamoros, where Friday's kidnapping took place. Tamaulipas Governor Americo Villarreal said the four were found in a wooden shack where they were being guarded by a man who was arrested. Villarreal said the captive Americans had been moved around by their captors and at one point were taken to a medical clinic to create confusion and avoid efforts to rescue them. The two dead will be turned over to U.S. authorities following forensic work at the Matamoros morgue in the coming hours, the governor said. Villarreal said the wounded American, Eric Williams, had been shot in the left leg and the wound was not life-threatening. The survivors were taken to Valley Regional Medical Center with an FBI escort. The Brownsville Herald reported a spokesperson for the hospital 
referred inquiries to the FBI. The U.S. citizens were found in a rural area east of Matamoros called Ijido de Colote on the way to the Gulf Coast. According to Daumaulipas State Chief Prosecutor Ervin Barrios, shortly after entering Mexico Friday, the four were caught amid fighting between rival cartel groups in the city. Barrios said the hypothesis is that it was Confucian, not a direct attack. Video taken during the abduction showed the American's wide minivan sitting besides another vehicle with at least one bullet hole in the driver's side window. Counting birds coming up short. I'm for the birds. Unfortunately, they not for me. That was sadly evident after I took part in the Great Backyard Bird Count, a worldwide annual program in which gullible humans are tasked with counting the birds in their bathrooms. Sorry, I mean, their backyards. After four days of looking up, which can lead to tree collisions and neck cramps, participants have to report the results via app or computer or, as I did, by returning bird counting packets to their local library. This is also scientists at places like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the National Audubon Society can find out why some avians are crazy enough to stick around and freeze their tail feathers off during the winter instead of flying first class to Florida and getting their jollies by popping on the cars of their fellow snowbirds. This is also scientists at places like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at the National Audubon Society can find out why some avians are crazy enough to stick around and freeze their tail feathers off during the winter instead of flying first class to Florida and getting their jollies by pooping on the cars of their fellow snowbirds. The day after picking up my bird counting packet, I spotted a woodpecker pecking on a tree and wondered how much wood a woodpecker could peck if a woodpecker would just peck wood instead of trying to jam hack hammer my house, as many annoying members of their species have done over the years. Unfortunately, I saw the red-headed rascals on a Thursday, and the count was supposed to start the next day. On Friday morning, I was up with the birds, and you guessed it, never saw even a single one the entire day. Saturday, I was sure it would be better. It wasn't. Not a robin, crow, or any other kind of bird in sight. Usually, they flock to my backyard like swallows to cat pistrano, pigeons to Venice, or orioles to Baltimore. I began to wonder if anyone had told the birds about the bird count. I was getting desperate, so I dropped panko breadcrumbs on the patio to lure hungry, unsuspecting, or just plain stupid birds. It didn't work. Then I went to the shed to get a birdhouse. I leaned it against a tall oak and watched. Not a peep. The great backyard bird count was at the halfway point, and I was beginning to suspect my fine feathered friends had gone into the Federal Witness Protection Program. Finally, on Sunday at 11.15 a.m., I was upstairs when I heard my wife, Sue, who was downstairs, excitedly shout, Han, you got a bird! I rushed down and looked out the family room window to see a blue jay perched on a high branch of the 
Aforementation joke. Look, Sue said, pointing skyward. There's another one. I marked down two blue jays on the tally sheet of my bird counting packet, as if a birdie board meeting had been called. A pair of cardinals show up. I mark them down too. But as soon as I opened the door to step outside and get a better look, all four feathery visitors flew out. You scared them," said Sue, adding that the cardinals were, in her estimation, a mommy and a daddy. Daddy cardinals are more colorful," I told her. "I might even say more beautiful, like you," replied Sue. We used to have a nice family of cardinals living in the backyard. I guess they moved, but I don't know where they went. Probably to St. Louis, I guess. Why? Sue asked. To join the St. Louis Cardinals, I said. Sue looked like she wanted to peg my eyes out, so I didn't mention anything about the Toronto Blue Jays. On Monday, the last day of the bird count, I was in the family room when I heard squawking. I looked out the window and saw five. Dark colored birds having an argument. I don't know if they were blackbirds or cowbirds, but I do know that they must have seen me marking them down on my tally sheet because they immediately flitted away, mocking me as they went. Thus ended the great backyard bird count. Finally, tally nine birds and one flighty human. The Audubon Society will know who's the biggest bird brain. Sports, Lee Woods stay unbeaten with Big Ten titles. Ann Arbor, Mitch. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't high scoring. It wasn't a match of the year type of day. All that mattered to Iowa's Spencer Lee and Real Woods was having their hands raised as Big Ten champions. And that's exactly what happened. Top seeded and ranked first nationally at 125 pounds, Lee used three takedowns and a bunch of riding time to stymie second seeded Liam Croning of Nebraska, 82 to win his third conference title. It was a good game plan. He was pushing a lot and pushing the piece. He wanted to force things," Lee said. "Usually he rolls a lot more when we wrestle. People game plan. It's the Big Ten finals. He was ready. The winner of fifty-five consecutive matches, Lee joined Mark Ironside as the only Hawkeyes to be named the Big Ten Wrestler the year three times, and was also selected as the Outstanding Wrestler of the championships. Woods put on a defensive clinic in the final two minutes to stave off Nebraska's Brock Hardy two to one in the 141-pound final. Woods, the first-year Hawkeye that that transferred from Stanford, claimed his first first Big Ten title after winning a pair of Pac-12 titles for the Cardinal. I've got to keep moving, Woods said. A post-match. Interview on the Big Ten Network. This is the perfect scenario to learn from that. Penn State, behind our behind four champions, 
prevailed as the conference tournament champions with 147 points. It follows the Nittany Lions' perfect mark in Big Ten duels. Iowa was second with 134.5 points with Nebraska, 104.5, Ohio State, 99, and Michigan, 84.5. Rounding out the top five, Illinois finished in 10th place with 46.5 points. Lee, aiming for his fourth NCAA title in two weeks in Tulsa, scored twice in the first three minutes and added another takedown in the third. He racked up over two minutes of riding at time against Cronin. I feel like I improved a lot this weekend in a lot of areas, but I have a lot of work on as well, Lee said. Wood scored the first takedown against Hardy and turned the Cornhusker to his back twice, trying to get back points. The first time on the edge, Woods wasn't awarded near fall points, and the Iowa corner threw the challenge brick. The call on the mat stood. Then right before the end of the period, Woods turned hardy, and the referee got off two swipes and gave Woods two near fall points. Nebraska's corner challenged, and the points were taken off. Obviously, it sucked, Wood said. Hardy rode out Woods for the entire second stanza and got two stall calls to trail by one. He had two single leg shots in the third, but Woods held firm and didn't give up the takedown. At 16-0 to on the year, Woods now heads to Tulsa for Nationals next week with a renewed determination. Now, in the future, I'm going to score those points and it is going to make a world of difference, Woods said. The Hawkeyes couldn't make it a 3-for-3 day in the finals. After four straight years of an Iowa wrestling winning a conference title at 165 pounds, Wisconsin's Dean Hamidi ended that streak with a 9-6 triumph over Patrick Kennedy. Hamidi built a 5-1 cushion on two takedowns, but Kennedy roared back with a three-point second period sequence of escape and takedown to make it a 4-5-4 four four match. After Hermity escaped, he rode Kennedy for more than half of the third, then scored on a go-behind to seal the victory. I was Max Murrin, 149, and Tony Cassiope, 285, finished in third place. Murrin clipped Penn State's Shane Van Ness, 3-2, and Cassiope defeated Ohio State Tate, Ornoff by a 10 to 1 major decision. Returning national runner up Jacob Warner, 197, won his fifth place match by medical forfeit, while Nesson Brands, 174, edged Illinois' Edmund Ruth 5 to 1 to place fifth. Brody Teske, 133, and Kobe Seabridge, 157, each won their seventh place matches in the morning season. The Hawkeyes will send all 10 of their guys to the national tournament held at the BOK Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma in two weeks. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, March 8th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. 
877-404-4747. I'm Patty Caldera from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.